Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we are speaking with Dr. Charles Quarles about his study of the Gospel of Matthew. Dr. Chuck Quarles serves as a research professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology, and he is the Charles Page Chair of Biblical Theology here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Dr. Quarles has also served as a pastor and as a missionary, and he has written extensively on the book of Matthew and the Synoptic Gospels. Furthermore, he is currently co-authoring a book entitled 40 Questions on the New Testament Text and Canon, and we'll be discussing his new book and the topic of textual criticism in another episode with Dr. Quarles, so be sure to uh, check that out. Dr. Quarles, we're glad to have you with us today. Very pleased to be here. Thank you. So tell us, what are you writing about on Matthew at this time? Well, my major current project is a theological commentary on the Gospel of Matthew for a series called the Evangelical Biblical Theological Commentary, published and by Lexham Press. Lexham Press. What what, so... Uh, tell us who your target audience is for a commentary of that nature, and what what contribution does a commentary of that sort make? Well, the primary audience is a pastor, and my goal is to encourage pastors to preach with a stronger doctrinal emphasis. I'm very concerned about the doctrinal anemia of the evangelical church and would like pastors to seize the opportunity to emphasize and articulate the great doctrines of the Christian faith in sermon after sermon after sermon through the Gospel of Matthew. So who was Matthew, and why is he writing the Gospel? Uh, I believe that the author of the Gospel is the Apostle Matthew, otherwise known as Levi the tax collector. And he writes this Gospel in order to emphasize several Christological themes, uh, Jesus' identity as the Emmanuel, God in human flesh, the new David, the new Moses, the new Abraham. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew is written with a strong Christological emphasis that I'm afraid many overlook. So uh, he's writing this. What does he have in front of him? Does, I mean, obviously we would think he has the Old Testament are certain, certain, but certain books you say, like the laws of Moses. Would he have Mark in front of him? What, what do you understand? What do you understand him to be yeah. working in? Good question. It's clear that the Old Testament is a primary source for the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is very frequently quoting and alluding to the Old Testament, sometimes with his explicit fulfillment formula. Uh, these things happen so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying that we see a number of times in the gospel. But even when he's not using the explicit fulfillment formula, he's often highlighting through allusions how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises. I do also believe 
that the Gospel of Mark was a source for Matthew. Now, the commentary isn't based on that assumption. Uh, I think that it's wisest for us to do a comparative analysis of the Gospels and look at similarities and differences, not disagreements, differences, uh, without any assumption about which Gospel is prior to another. So he presents him uh, as the the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Uh, we see this, you know, from beginning to end. Like you said, you have the fulfillment narratives, things of that nature. So, how how creative does Matthew get? You know, there are those who would say there's a great deal of midrash. Are you comfortable with that kind of language and that kind of understanding, or how would you under? I mean, obviously he is selecting. Uh, what he wants to to emphasize and if you say okay he does have uh, the gospel of Mark to work with my he adds a great deal to it so how do you understand uh, Matthew to be working with those kinds of of things yeah well on the question of Midrash uh, whether or not it's present in the gospel of Matthew all depends on how it's defined if we're simply talking about rabbinic methods of exegesis well, sure, clearly many of those are present. But some scholars, uh, the most famous for the Gospel of Matthew would be Robert Gundry, have argued that the Gospel of Matthew is a theological tale, which he defines as midrash, that takes narrative motifs from the Old Testament and weaves them together into a completely different story in order to promote a theological message about Jesus Christ that's not grounded in actual history and that I would strongly object to. I actually wrote my uh, PhD dissertation in response to Gundry's views. So uh, you would you would be someone who would be very comfortable affirming the historicity of what we're reading? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's vitally important. So then um, when like let's take the uh, the the temptation narratives uh, how uh, the gospel authors felt comfortable in presenting them in different order. I don't think that's, I mean, I think you and I would both say this is not a mistake and it's talking about something historical. How are we to understand what, uh, I mean, Luke shows them in a different order than, than the others. So what's, what's going on there? How do we understand that? Sure. I, I think that most of the differences, not disagreements, between the gospels that we find are an effort on the part of the gospel writer to highlight the theological significance of the actual event. Uh, They do not change events, they do not create events, but they report them in such a way that their significance becomes clearer to their particular audience. Now, we're accustomed to opening an English translation and sometimes finding the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, in red letters, and we assume that that is a verbatim, word-for-word quotation of what Jesus said. If we compare the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, side by side, that will quickly be challenged uh, because sometimes a Gospel writer phrases Jesus' statement one way and we'll find slight differences in the parallels, clear parallels in another gospel account. But what we have to realize is that many of the sayings of Jesus in the gospels are along the lines of what we would call today 
indirect quotations. And as long as the gospel writer is true to Jesus' intention and meaning, there is no problem with him rephrasing in order to clarify Jesus' intention to his audience. So would you be comfortable with making the distinction between the words of Jesus and the voice of Jesus? Is that, yes. is that what you're getting at? Right. And so, you know, I, I've, um, I think that for a lot of lay listeners not familiar with the way things were, were communicated in the first century, and perhaps they're not familiar with many of the ways that things are communicated in the 21st century, uh, that they would have, they would struggle to understand that distinction. Can you go ahead and explain just a little more? Say like on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, okay. I mean, I yeah, mean, let's use the example of the Beatitude where the Lord Jesus says, blessed are the poor in the Gospel of Luke, but in the Gospel of Matthew, a clear parallel, the statement is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, which is the original form that Jesus spoke in his native Aramaic? Really hard to say. I suspect that Luke preserves for us the original form. And what Matthew is doing is spelling out more clearly for his audience Jesus' intention. Because the poor in the Old Testament are not just an economic category, they're a spiritual category. They're people who, because of their poverty, have an intense sense of their dependence on God and reliance on Him, uh, just for their survival from one day to the other. And Matthew wants to emphasize the spiritual intention Jesus has behind that category. So he's not changing Jesus' message. He's just clarifying Jesus' intention to his audience. So Jesus is um, speaking uh, to an audience that um, had some expectations. In the Gospel of Matthew, does Matthew subvert those expectations? Does he uh, present those expectations? In other words, what was the messianic expectation of Jesus' original audience? and In what ways does did Jesus fit that, and in what ways did completely overthrow it? All right, good question. He fulfilled some of their expectations. Uh, it's clear that the ancient rabbis were expecting a Messiah who would be a descendant of David, uh, who would be the fulfillment of the prophet like Moses' prophecy of Deuteronomy 18. Uh, I think he exceeds their expectations by being not only royal, but also divine. Uh, Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospel of Matthew and the other synoptics is, is not uh, Messiah, Christos, but it's actually the Son of Man, used with far, far greater frequency by the Lord Jesus. And I think the reason he prefers that title is because that enabled him to uh, define messianic expectations in light of the clear teaching of the Old Testament prophets uh, without all of the assumptions of the rabbinic teachers of the day. And some of those assumptions would be? Uh, I don't think that the rabbis in general were expecting a Messiah who was deity incarnate, God in human flesh. Uh, their view of deity really didn't even permit that. 
But when Jesus uses the Son of Man title, he's alluding to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. The Son of Man figure comes on the clouds of heaven, which is a theophanic description. And he's distinct from the Ancient of Days. He is. And then he has worshipped, would be the best translation of the Aramaic term that Daniel uses, by people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Uh, He is also given authority over all of the peoples of the earth, power, dominion, and so forth. And that suggests that he's the fulfillment of an element of the Ancient of Days prophecy in Daniel 7 that immediately precedes, where the Ancient of Days sets up thrones, plural, and then opens the book and convenes court. Uh, Since Jesus is given royal authority and dominion in the very next vision, it is clear contextually that one of the thrones that was set up by the Ancient of Days is for the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus. So Jesus, the Messiah of heavenly origin, is actually enthroned alongside the Ancient of Days in the book of Daniel. Uh, And some of the rabbis recognized that. But when rabbis like Akiva taught that in the early 2nd century, they were actually accused of blasphemy and of affirming a view that belonged only to the heretics, the Christians. Uh, I'm convinced that Akiva was exegeting the Old Testament accurately. And many ancient scribes evidently thought so as well. Our earliest manuscript of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually has the Son of Man vision read this way. And he came uh, as the Son of Man and as the Ancient of Days. Hmm. Uh, Very strongly emphasizing both the humanity and deity of the Son of Man figure. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, I'm convinced he is actually affirming his deity as clearly as any other Christological title that we'll find in the pages of the New Testament. So it's clear that um, he does fulfill some of their expectations, and he emphasizes, as you point out, with the Son of Man uh, nomenclature, something that perhaps that they had left under-emphasized. Then there are some places where he's distinctively different. Uh, One I mean, you read some of the intertestamental uh, expectations. They are looking for somebody to really teach the Romans a lesson. Uh, they, would you, I mean, how, how militaristic were the expectations of the first century uh, about, uh, in their thinking of what the Messiah was going to be like? Yeah. Well, it depends on which source. Uh, I would say that in a book like First Enoch, written between the time of the Old and New Testament. Uh, The Son of Man expectation is very similar to the presentation we actually see in the New Testament, where the Son of Man figure is described not only as royal, but as divine. He's actually ascribed the divine name Yahweh in First Enoch. In other sources, he definitely is more of a conqueror who's going to overthrow the Romans. and Jesus clearly doesn't fit into that paradigm, at least not yet, uh, because he will come as a conquering warrior one day. 
uh, overthrowing all the wicked and consigning them to eternal punishment. So some of those elements uh, will ultimately be manifested at the second coming, but uh, the enemy that's overthrown will be all of the wicked, not just those of a particular political empire. So what are some of the themes that Matthew emphasizes uh, that you think that most evangelicals miss, that these are themes that should be brought to our attention by commentators such as you? Right. Uh, One would be Jesus' identity as the new Moses, which is one of the most prominent themes of the Gospel of Matthew that he emphasizes in a number of ways. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is like Moses in his infancy, in his teaching, in his miracles, in his transfiguration. Uh, We could go on and on. And that typology demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, that a prophet like Moses is going to come, who will speak with divine authority. And as the new Moses, Jesus is, first of all, a a savior and deliverer. Uh, But he's going to lead us on a different kind of exodus, not out of bondage to uh, a pharaoh in Egypt, but out of bondage to sin and Satan. Like Moses, he is also a covenant mediator uh, and one who delivers Torah, God's law. I'm convinced that the Sermon on the Mount is actually the Messianic Torah or what we might call the New Covenant Torah Hmm. being delivered by the new Moses. There are a number of features of the Sermon on the Mount that confirm that that we could discuss further if you want to. Another theme that is prominent in the gospel that I think is sadly overlooked by evangelicals is the Emmanuel theology and its full significance. Many evangelicals have assumed that the Emmanuel theology isn't prominent because it only appears in the quotation of Isaiah 7:14 in Matthew 1, where, behold, the virgin will conceive, his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. But Jack Kingsbury pointed out, after his narrative critical approach to the gospel, that Emmanuel is something of an inclusio, or bookends that surround the whole gospel of Matthew. Uh, we find uh, God with us in the quotation of Isaiah 7:14 in Matthew 1, and then in the final verses of the gospel, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, and behold, what? I am with I you always. I am with you. Yeah. Uh, the I am of Matthew 28 matches the God is of Matthew chapter 1, and with us matches with you. This brackets the entire gospel and emphasizes Jesus' identity as the Emmanuel who has come to live among his people. And that actually is a theological theme introduced in the very first verse. But unfortunately, we don't see it in our English translations. Uh, This is one of my favorite examples of why it's important to know Greek for ministry. When we open our Bibles to Matthew 1.1, we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. But that first phrase in the Greek text is actually biblos geneseos, 
biblos meaning book, but geneseos is the genitive form of the noun genesis. Sound familiar? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of sounds like the word Genesis. Yeah. Uh, this phrase is the phrase used by first century Jews as a title for the first book of Bible, the, fir- the book of Genesis, the book of origins. The actual title of Matthew's gospel is not the gospel according to Matthew. It is the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Uh, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance is that Jesus is the author of a new Genesis. He is the author of a new creation. And this theme is going to surface several times in Matthew's gospel. Probably the clearest point uh, would be Matthew chapter 19, in which Jesus is talking about the Messianic era, and he refers to it in Greek as the Polygenesia which is translated a variety of different ways, the new world, uh, the messianic age, but it literally means something along the lines of the beginning again, uh, the new creation. Uh, William Tyndale translated it as the regeneration. It's the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And one of the themes of the Gospel of Matthew is that in his coming, Jesus has initiated the miracle of new creation. Already he is transforming sinners' hearts and making them into new and different people. That's why his disciples can be described as the pure in heart, for example. Uh, And then ultimately, he will transform and renew all of creation, setting right everything that is wrong with this broken and fallen world. So you have several places that are distinctive in Matthew. Uh, you have the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is an area of, of expertise for you. You have the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, you have the Olivet Discourse uh, given. And, and quite honestly, I think that uh, there's a lot of pastors that, that look at all three of those with fear and trembling because they require a certain amount of, of interpretive, I mean, if not expertise, acumen. So what, what advice would you have for a pastor, a busy pastor, trying to faithfully preach Matthew and those texts? And you take one, two, or three, or however you want to do that. Yeah. Well, I would say one, on parable. I think that the parables of the Lord Jesus are one of the portions of the New Testament that are most frequently mishandled, partly because we misunderstand their purpose. We kind of interpret the parables like we would old fables that have a moral. And they are a unit in of themselves, a self-contained thing, you know, where you don't have to look at its context or, like you said, and quite honestly, somebody who, you, you and I have both been pastors, and, and young pastors, and I, I look back at some of my sermons that I preached decades ago and roll my eyes and say, what, what was I thinking? I think that, that kind of fear and trepidation for a lot of young pastors, they look and said, you know, I hate to preach through a book of the Bible only to find out later on uh, that I mishandled the text. I mean, right. you do have a, you have yeah. a spiritual responsibility to handle this faithfully. 
Yeah, I, I would recommend a book when it comes to parable interpretation by Craig Blomberg. Um, I think the title of it is Interpreting the Parables, uh, which I wouldn't say revolutionized my approach to parable, but it confirmed some things that I had already concluded based on working through the parables. Uh, we tend to think of the parables as simple stories teaching just one essential spiritual truth. And what we don't realize is that approach to parables is actually the result of the influence of a liberal German scholar named Adolf Ulicker. If you look at how Jesus interprets his own parables, they're clearly allegories, if by that we mean multiple points of symbolism teaching multiple truths. And that's the way Old Testament parables function, it's the way the rabbinic parables function, and it's the way Jesus interprets his own parables, at least most of them. So it's more like uh, Pilgrim's Progress uh, than it is Aesop's fables. Yes, more like. I wouldn't say exactly like. I, I don't think that as many details are symbolic in Jesus' parables as we might find in Bunyan's work. Uh, but many of them are. And if we don't recognize that, our approach to the parables really will be impoverished. So what do you think of uh, someone like Richard Hayes' book, uh, Reading Backwards? Uh, would you recommend a young pastor to read something like that to help them understand the Christological emphasis? Or what? I, I really do. I wouldn't agree with Hayes at every single point, but I think he's absolutely right that the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, not atomistically, and by that I mean snatching a little verse out of its context and applying it in a completely different way than the Old Testament authors. Which is the accusation by critical scholars. Yeah. I'm convinced that that does not occur. Instead, the New Testament quotations of the Old are done with great sensitivity to the original context. The New Testament authors expect their readers in general to be familiar with that Old Testament context and allow it to be a guide to their understanding of the writer's appropriation. So I think our most important commentary on the Gospels is going to be the Old Testament. And when we start tracking down those quotations and echoes and allusions, then the meaning of the New Testament is going to come to light in a mind-blowing and heart-transforming way. So we've mentioned Hayes' book. We mentioned uh, Blomberg's book on uh, interpreting parables. Uh, your book, uh, say the title of it again on the commentary on Matthew, will be? Let's see. It's Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary. Yeah, and mine's just the volume on Matthew. So uh, for the busy pastor who is wanting to preach through uh, through, through through Matthew, what what commentary or book, other books might you recommend? All right. Well, this might sound self-serving, uh, but I would recommend the Theology of Matthew that I wrote. It's a fairly short read, but it will introduce pastors to the major theological themes of the book. Jesus' identity as what I call the new creator. We're really talking about the Emmanuel theology there. The new David, the new Moses, the new Abraham. And then the book shows how those Christological truths are integrated with all the other areas of theology, like our doctrine of salvation, our doctrine of the church. I think that would be a good starting point. 
My favorite commentary on the Gospel of Matthew thus far would be the one by R.T. France. Just an outstanding work. Uh, And that's the that's the NICNT series. That's correct. Yeah. 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 For those who are really busy and don't have the time to wade through France, I would recommend David Turner's commentary on Matthew and the Baker Exegetical Commentary on the New Testament. Uh, He is masterful at taking complex truths and getting down uh, to the nitty-gritty, boiling it down to a nutshell. Uh, It's really very, very well done. I don't agree with France and Turner at every point, uh, but there are certainly resources that pastors will want. Like I said, I don't even agree with myself on every point of when I preached through Matthew 20 years ago. So so, uh, those are great, great recommendations. Uh, Dr. Quarles, thank you for sharing your insights with us about the Gospel of Matthew. Just talking to you about this uh, is, is exciting. Uh, uh, about uh, studying the Gospels for how they present Christ to us in such a wonderful way. You've been listening to the Christ and Culture podcast. My name's Ken Keefley, and we're wishing you a good day.